This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History is a brand new book with lots of weird and wildly entertaining stories that haven't been covered on this podcast. Stories like the rise of everybody's favorite painter of the pretty, Claude Monet, and how all those water lilies and haystacks were actually subversive badassery. How some late 19th and early 20th century women may possibly be the first abstract artists, and what do toenail clippings and a chunk of Caroline Kennedy's birthday cake have to do with one of Andy Warhol's most enduring legacies. Art Curious, the book, will be released on September 15, 2020, but you can pre-order now to reserve your copy. Pre-order links are available in the show notes or at our website, artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. That's artcuriouspodcast.com slash book. This season of the Art Curious Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, AnchorLight. Please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com to learn all about their artist residency programs, exhibitions, and more. One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is that it gives me a way to continue to learn about art, and especially to learn about art that is not always in my wheelhouse. During my days, I focus on contemporary art with what I hope is a wide and global emphasis. But as many of you know, my training wasn't originally so broad. That's the thing about going to grad school, about perusing specific degrees. You end up getting very narrow into your focal area. But with Art Curious, I don't have to be so specific. And that's what's been so rewarding about this season, which we've been calling the coolest artists you don't know. Because in some cases, the you in that season title was actually me too. And that is especially the case for the artist that we're discussing today for our season finale. She was all new to me. And for an art nerd like me, there's almost nothing more thrilling than the discovery of a new and exciting artist. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season seven, we're uncovering the coolest artists you don't know, including an artist whose existence I only learned of a couple years back, the artist daughter of a famed Japanese superstar. For our season finale, we're uncovering the life and work of Katsushika Oi. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Like many, many of the artists that we've discussed repeatedly on this podcast, Katsushika Oi was never a stranger to the art world because she had a familial link to this world. Her father was an artist himself. But this story is going to be different right off the bat than those of the other women like Rosa Bonheur, Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, Angelica Kaufman, and so many others. 
because the fame and influence of those women have outstripped the careers of their own fathers. But not so here, for better or for worse. Because Katsushika Oi's father was none other than Katsushika Hokusai, one of the world's most recognized and revered Japanese artists of the modern era. If you've heard of him, you probably just know him as Hokusai, his given name. And if you aren't familiar with Hokusai by name, then it's nevertheless practically a certainty that you've at least seen his best-known work, a print called The Great Wave Off Kanagawa, also known just as The Wave or The Great Wave. It's an image of a white-capped wave curling magnificently over three longboats with Mount Fuji standing sentinel in the distance. As far as Japanese artists are concerned, especially before our contemporary period, Hokusai is probably the biggest, and definitely one of the most recognizable. By the early 19th century, he had reached the zenith of his career, finding interest for his landscapes and images of everyday Japanese life, for which he became most widely known. These illustrations were featured in many books and print collections, but his work didn't stop there. He also published a number of instructional art manuals and released 12 volumes of manga, or Japanese graphic novels, during this period, a format that is even more popular now than it was back in Hokusai's day. So, you know, not a small act for his daughter to follow. But what's amazing about Katsushika Oi, whom I will simply call Oi for this episode, is that she was truly able, nonetheless, to carve her own successful path outside of her father's influence, a feat that was nearly impossible for women in Japan at the time. Much of Oi's life is a bit of a cipher, as might be expected for a woman born in the early 19th century. We don't know her exact birth date, but historians have assumed that she was born somewhere around 1800 to Hokusai and his second wife, Kotome. The family lived during a period in Japan known as the Late Edo Period, sometimes also known as the Tokugawa Period, or the final era before the massive reform and industrialization of the latter half of the 19th century, which thoroughly changed Japan forever. The Edo Period is what some have referred to as the last breath of quote-unquote traditional Japan. Just giving you a little bit of context here. Oi's given name was actually Eijo, at least I think I'm pronouncing that right, but it looks like she ended up changing her given name early on in her career, or perhaps she opted to adopt a variation of it instead as a nickname. Either way, her name choice, either Oi, spelled O-I, or Ei, spelled E-I, is a testament to the playful, teasing relationship that existed between herself and her father. Some accounts noted that Hokusai would often refer to his daughter by the informal and somewhat jokingly impolite name of Oi, which roughly translated in modern English to, hey you. It's telling that she would go on to adopt this very cheeky nickname, but it also makes sense too, as someone whose own livelihood was molded and assisted by her father's hand. She trained in her father's studio alongside her siblings, three sisters and a brother, so that each learned the basics of painting and printmaking from a very early age. But it was noted that Oi was, by far, the most artistically talented and knowledgeable of Hokusai's children, and such aptitude would serve her and her father very well. It's difficult to discuss Oi's life without going deep into her father's, too, because they are inextricably linked. 
and because Owi appears to have acted for her father in many cases. In the 1820s, after the death of her mother, Owi assumed a caretaking role for her father, who was then in his late 60s. After so many years of training at his knee, she was primed to assist him in carrying out his commissions and other private projects, often signing his name instead of hers to works of art that she created. Though whether or not she was doing this to masquerade as her father, or to use his name as a kind of family identifier, or because he was just a bigger name and was just easier that way, it's all still up for debate. Oi likely signed her father's name to most works because Hokusai had a more globally recognized name, which we'll get to in a moment. And society in Edo-era Japan, as it was for most of the rest of the world at the time, was patriarchal. But it is interesting to note that it was during this time that Hokusai was in the midst of painting his 36 Views of Mount Fuji series, his most iconic series, and the one which would go on to include the Great Wave off Kanagawa. Knowing what we know about Oi's talent and abilities, and the role she played in assisting her father throughout his career, some historians have gone on to wonder just how much of works like The Great Wave were actually painted, in part or full, by Oi instead of her father. I alluded a moment ago to the global fame that Hokusai experienced during his lifetime. Though much about Hokusai's life is mythic and difficult to ascertain, because the lines between fact and fiction are blurred, even more so than in Edmonia Lewis's life, which we explored earlier this season, there seems to be this one probable meeting that may have happened between the Japanese artist and a German doctor named Philip Franz von Siebold, a man employed at a Dutch trading post in Nagasaki in the 1820s, and who went on to commission some works by the artist. When Siebold brought these works back to Europe, they were met with fervor from an already burgeoning Japanomania, or Japanisma as it was called. An absolute adoration for all things culture and art from the still closed off from the West country. You can especially see evidence of this fervor in the second half of the 1800s, when artists like Claude Monet and Vincent van Gogh took cues from Japanese art, especially prints like those done by Hokusai, for their own art. What's interesting is that the connection between Siebold and Hokusai may have been facilitated by one of the artist's assistants, as it had long been noted that Hokusai was injured during this period and would not have been able to meet with von Siebold to discuss and plan commissions. Was his daughter, Oi, instead responsible for this career-making endeavor? Possibly. Such questions show us that Hokusai's key connections and collaborations with his daughter were more than incidental. They were essential to his career. Naturally, Hokusai's fame and talents must have helped Katsushika Oi in her career too. But as her life progressed, her renown, separate from that of her father, also grew. That's coming up next, right after this break. Have you ever wondered how ancient humans survived pandemics? Or how sailors navigated using only the night sky? Now you don't have to wonder where you can find this information, because these things and many more are all available on The Great Courses Plus. 
I love The Great Courses Plus because there are thousands, literally thousands, of lectures available that cover everything from history to cooking, biology, business, languages, crafts, and so much more. And they are all presented by respected professors and experts. So it's like going back to school, but only for fun, only learning the things that interest you most. And you can do it all on your own time with no pressure about anything like grades, tests, or homework. And all of their content is so easy to access at any time on the Great Courses Plus app. I was curious about expanding a little more of my knowledge about the ancient world. And so I've been checking out their course, 30 Masterpieces of the Ancient World which travels around the world highlighting stunning works of art from ancient cultures millennia ago. Keep on wondering and feed your curiosity with The Great Courses Plus. Right now, my listeners can get an all-access trial to their entire library for free. Sign up today at my special URL to get started. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash art. Don't wait. TheGreatCoursesPlus.com slash art. I like poetry in theory, but sometimes I find it a little hard to get into. I was recently looking online for some examples of people interpreting and updating poetry in some fresh ways, just like we try to do with our podcast. And I was thrilled to find the Campfire Poetry Project. Campfire Poetry was created and produced by Monticello Park Productions and allows emerging artists, and any of us really, to turn classic poems into short videos that get us to understand why and how poetry is still so necessary for us today. Take, for example, an animated film called Ginevra that's based on a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley, one of my favorite poets, or Breton Afternoon, a dance performance by Tamisha Guy that updates a poem by Ernest Christopher Dowson. Each take is smartly recontextualized so that it reflects our own concerns here and now. But to be able to support this project, Campfire Poetry needs our help. To learn about their projects, see the films that are already being produced, and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit campfirepoetry.com. That's campfirepoetry.com, and thanks for making art happen. Welcome back to Art Curious. If Oi was actively adding to her father's fame, the good news was that she also began to add to her own. By the 1820s, she began to venture out on her own, making artworks of her own accord and in a realm specifically apart from her father's. Most notably, Oi capitalized on a highly popular painting genre called bijinga, which roughly translates to portraits of beautiful people. And Oi trained her bijinga brush on portraits of women in particular. This style appears to have been a wonderful mishmash of influences and different traditions, encompassing such disparate elements as advertising and classical painting, pop culture, and parody. As art historian Anna Moblard Meyer noted in a 2013 exhibition essay on Bijinga, quote, Edo period Bijinga advertised the latest hairstyles and textile designs, the plays and celebrated actors of the Kabuki Theater, specific tea shops and performance arenas in Edo, and the entertainment women and festivals of the Yoshiwara, Edo's licensed brothel district, unquote. This last part is notable, but not shocking, because the women depicted in Oi's pictures are typically courtesans. Prostitution was legal in Japan during this period and played a very important role in Edo culture. Though it surely wasn't a happy profession for many, it was nevertheless a segment of society that was prized and idealized an area which fed directly into the visual arts of this period. Oi's most famous work of art is called Night Scene at Yoshiwara. 
a print that depicts the main red light district of Edo. Her talent is masterfully evident here, a colorful image delineated by the contrast between light and dark, showcasing the decorated courtesans on display in a brightly lit room while spectators peer in on them from the night-dimmed street beyond. What's fascinating here is the psychological tone of this artwork. It's pointedly different from other examples of Oi's Bajinga output. Take, for example, her works that more directly venerate feminine beauty. Three women playing musical instruments, which dates from between 1818 and 1840 and is now on display at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. I mean, this work, the title itself is pretty self-explanatory here, but you've got to hand it to her. She is an incredible painter. Her detailing of the textures and colors of the women's clothing, for example, that alone is magnificent. And in another silk hanging, called Beauty Viewing Cherry Blossoms at Night, or just Cherry Blossoms at Night, now in the Menard Art Museum in Komaki, Japan, is even more stunning in its combination of female depiction and a celebration of the natural world. Here, too, you can see those same preoccupations with contrast of light and dark, of color and detail. But that street scene in Yoshiwara is just different. It's more theatrical, like the courtesans here are placed on a stage set, the actors in a play that isn't necessarily of their making. The disconnect is heightened further by the fact that we, as viewers, are with the spectators on the outside, and we look in on them through the wooden latticework of windows. Now, it's hard as a 21st century American to put myself in a position of understanding the cultural specificity of this scene and to assume that I understand any of what the courtesans, let alone the artist herself, is feeling or thinking in creating such a scene. But to me, the lattice work feels very reminiscent of bars on a jail cell or a cage. Was there any consideration or question on Owie's part that these women appear more like animals in a cage than human beings? Maybe, but probably not. And that's the conflict here. Is she simply memorializing a specific tradition here in Yoshiwara? Is she objectifying these women? Is she applying some kind of proto-feminist understanding and undercurrent to her painting, a reminder of the suffering or injustice that was likely foisted upon them? That's a lot for us to consider, and probably we're reaching here. And yet, in comparison to many of Oi's other artworks, which are more evocative of fashion plates than anything else, this one captures a darkness that is both literal and figurative. We'll be right back for the end of our story after this short break. I believe in having clean and environmentally friendly options, so I like to support companies who innovate products that break the norm and help clean up both my daily routine and the planet. And that's why I love Native. Native deodorant is not only awesome at fighting odor and wetness, it is also made better with ingredients that you can actually recognize, like coconut oil and shea butter. It's also vegan, never tested on animals, and is committed to plastic-free packaging, which is so important to me as I've been working hard to minimize plastic in my life. Their all-new, just-launched paperboard package scents like coconut and vanilla, charcoal, and citrus and herbal musk are all aluminum-free, and they'll keep you smelling and feeling fresh all day long. I personally can't wait to get my hands on their lavender and rose scent. 
Native is risk-free to try because every product comes with free shipping within the U.S. and free 30-day returns and exchanges. See why so many people love Native and check out their over 14,000 five-star reviews. So do what I did and make the switch to Native today by going to nativedeo.com slash artcurious or use promo code artcurious at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash artcurious or use promo code artcurious at checkout for 20% off your first order. What does 2020 mean for small businesses? You have to do more with less, and suddenly every single hire is critical, but there are fewer resources to find the right people. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire that you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates that will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com art. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com art. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Art Curious. As her success grew, Owie's independence from her father's artistic influence was becoming more apparent. While Hokusai had mostly veered away from figurative painting, his daughter was making a career out of it and was doing so quite successfully. Hokusai was undoubtedly proud, once noting, quote, when it comes to paintings of beautiful women, I can't compete with her. She's quite talented and expert in the technical aspects of painting." Unquote. But to minimize Owe's works to this focus on beautiful women is to further minimize her technical prowess too. In addition to Night Scene in the Yoshiwara, Owe's other masterpiece is called Operating on the Arm of Guan Yu, a painted scroll from the 1840s that depicts a gruesome bloody scene from a 16th century Chinese novel called The Romance of Three Kingdoms. 
In this scene, the legendary military leader Guan Yu undertakes a bloodletting in order to potentially remove poisons inflicted upon him by an enemy's arrow. The expressions here are priceless. While his attendants' bodies writhe in discomfort and most of them turn their heads away, barely able to witness the rivulets of blood pouring out of their leader's sliced open arm, Guan Yu rather humorously remains fully attentive to a board game in front of him. And behind him, an abundant meal awaits. It's basically like he's just chilling on a normal evening, no big deal, just getting his arm methodically sliced open, la-di-da. It is fantastic. And Oe's mastery of the 19th century Japanese painting genre is obvious here. An achievement made even greater when we consider that, at nearly 55 inches tall by 27 inches wide, this is the biggest known work by the artist. And yet, her shrewd attention to detail in everything, from the intricate designs on the garments worn by the men, to the fine red lines flowing from Guan Yu's arm, is exquisitely executed. Oe counterbalances chaos with composure contrasting the obvious violence of the bloody scene with the elegant and spare interior surrounding her figures. It takes a particularly talented artist to pull off this feat, and Oe does it wonderfully. In the last years of her life, Oe continued to enjoy a modicum of success and fame, though she died in relative obscurity. After her father's death in 1849, she continued to operate his art studio alongside several other assistants, which explains the interesting anachronism of the existence of Hokusai works that date to after he died. From what little we know of Oi in the years after her father's death, it appears that she taught for a bit, taking pupils and assistants of her own, before moving and eventually falling off the grid. Her death most likely occurred somewhere around 1866, though no one really knows for sure. Like Edmonia Lewis, she disappears from our books due to the limitations of history and her gender. But thankfully, more has been done to remember her, both as a key collaborator with Hokusai and as a hugely talented artist in her own right. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This is the last episode of our current season, so I want to thank all of you for the love, support, and listening that you've done with us over these past few months. Rest assured that we will be back with you later this fall. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Adria Gunter and Stephanie Pryor. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki. Let them help you too at K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. Thank you to the many people who have reached out and have donated $10 to help this show. You can help our show as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at artcuriouspod. While you wait for us to come back online with new episodes this fall, remember that you can pre-order my book, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, coming out on September 15, 2020 from Penguin Books. Until then, stay curious.